Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Always a joy to speak to William Dudley. He's a former president of the New York Federal Reserve, the interesting mandate at the New York Fed, Bloomberg opinion columnist, and doing so much for Bloomberg Economics as a senior advisor. Bill Dudley, a virtual Jackson Hole. You and I have been there. There's a, you know, the central bankers go out, they wave at the moose at the split rail fence. They're not going to do that this year. How does it change if Jackson Hole is virtual? Well, it eliminates all the uh, side conversations at the luncheons, on the hikes. Uh, so there isn't the kind of back channel kind of communication that you might uh, get in, 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 otherwise. I mean, there's a number of things that I would love to talk to Fed participants about that, that have nothing to do with monetary policy. You know, what are they planning to do on payments and cyber uh, cryptocurrencies and digital currencies? Uh, what's their attitude about climate change? Uh, so there's a lot of things to talk about. And if you don't have those opportunities right. at lunch and dinner, you don't, you can't talk about those things. From the fractious Fed development, you know, not to make it a history lesson, but the panic of 07, out to McChesney Martin in the early 1950s, out to now, where is the Fed mandate to consider climate change? How do they do that? How do they affect that? Well, I think they certainly have a mandate to uh, consider climate change from a financial stability perspective, to the extent that climate change uh, induces worse outcomes on the you know, macroeconomy, <clears throat> economic disasters, uh, to, affect to, to the extent that it affects the value of uh, assets that banks lend against, uh, that does threaten individual, could potentially threaten individual institutions and the financial system. And the Fed has responded to that. They've set up two committees, one to address the overall financial stability risk and another to address risk at individual institutions. And they're pushing these individual institutions to develop data uh, and processes to evaluate climate risk and how they make their lending and other business banking decisions. I think that's completely appropriate. On monetary policy, it's a lot more difficult, right? Because monetary policy is really about what's going to happen in the next year or two, not what's going to happen in the next 20 or 30 years. So even if you think climate change is an existential threat to the, to the, to the U.S. and global economy, which I think it is, it's not clear how you would incorporate climate change risk into the near-term monetary policy decisions. And, and that's where the and, Fed's getting some criticism of, of from people who say the Fed's not doing enough on climate change. I just think it's difficult to take the monetary policy mandate and say, well, that really expands to the climate change issue. And Bill, it also, though, goes to the question of policy drift. Has the Fed gotten too far from their main goals of trying to control inflation and support the labor market? I mean, when their labor market goals are a lot less defined, perhaps, than they have been in the past, then you have also other goals like climate change and broader uh, other goals and initiatives that feel more like policy. How much is the Fed risking allowing some of their main goals, namely inflation, to get out of control as it focuses on some of these other uh, goals? I think this is why uh, Chair Powell hasn't gone that far in the, in the climate change direction from a monetary policy perspective compared to, say, like the European Central Bank. He understands that there is a risk of being criticized of going too far. That said, the financial stability part is certainly part of the Fed's mandate, because without financial stability, 
the Fed can't achieve its goals on inflation and unemployment. So I think that uh, the Fed is taking the right course. They're taking climate change seriously, but they're focusing on it from a financial stability and safety and soundness uh, proposition. Well, you mentioned some of the criticism that the Fed has not gotten has gotten for not acting on this in a more aggressive way. A lot of that comes from the progressives who may we would like to see someone else at the helm. But we had Janet Yellen reportedly over the weekend telling White House advisors that she supports Powell for a second term. Just how significant is that? Well, I think uh, uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen's endorsement is important because she knows what is needed to be the chair of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and she's very well respected both inside the administration and outside the administration. So I think her endorsement is very, very important. I think also, you know, when you think about it, Chair Powell really is the path of least resistance. He's already shown that he's very capable and he has support on both sides of the political aisle. If you, the progressives got their way and nominated someone, someone that was uh, consistent with what they want, uh, then I think it'd be a lot harder to get that person confirmed because how many Republican voters would you get? You know, Tom asked a question earlier today, and given Fed Chair Powell is likely to remain at the helm, what inflation is he looking at most closely? And is it changing in terms of the nature of price increases, where it is occurring, in terms of how they evaluate it at the Fed? Well, I think they've focused on the notion of, is this transitory or is this going to be more persistent? Uh, for to, to have persistent inflation, really two things have to happen. One, you have to, have, you have to run out of labor and have pressure on wages. And that weight pressure on wages gets into prices. And two, you have to have a rise in inflation expectations. So far, it looks like there's still some slack in the labor market. Uh, and, and inflation expectations, they've risen a little bit, uh, really to levels more consistent with what the Fed wants rather than higher than what mm -hmm. the Fed wants. So at this point, uh, the Fed's view is that the inflation pressures that we're having are, are transitory. Probably they're going to be uh, more persistent than one would like for transitory pressures. In other words, the inflation rate will probably stay above the Fed's target of 2% for a while. Uh, but they're they're really focused on what's happening in the labor market and what's happening to inflation expectations. Mm -hmm. And as those things, as long as those things are okay in terms of their inflation signal, then the Federal Reserve will be pretty comfortable uh, with, with where inflation is right now. Dr. Dudley, as did Secretary Yellen, can you tell us this morning that you would actively support the renomination, the reappointment of Chairman Powell? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's done a, he's done a terrific job. He has the whole, whole FOMC behind him. Uh, I think he's articulated what the Fed's policy uh, is in a, in a very clear uh, and consistent way. So I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be reappointed. Bill Dudley, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, former president of the New York Federal Reserve and senior advisor to Bloomberg uh, Economics. Right now, Lori Calvacino with us, RBC Capital Markets. Lori, it is a resilient market. Is it a market that can break out to new highs? So thanks for having me, Tom. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Look, we're still in the camp that things will get a decent-sized pullback before the end of the year. So we've got a target at 43.25 on the S&P. And look, I think what was interesting in the price action last week, it felt like we had a bit of a growth skirmish to start the week. We saw the index falter, and we saw defensive sectors leading the charge. When that ends up happening, the market really can't sustain this move um, to the upside. Now, what we saw towards the end of the week is that those jitters did calm down a little bit. Tech started working. We started to see just some stability in the index return. But when you have fear seep in, 
markets really can't climb. When you have sort of that nervousness and that shift to high quality, markets can climb that wall of worry. But it's a very delicate balance. And frankly, it didn't work for most of last week. Well, but honestly, how big is this wall of worry, Lori, if we have the Fed that is backing the market, if we have the potential, a greater potential, frankly, for federal fiscal stimulus, if the slowdown does persist? I mean, doesn't policy support sort of completely cancel out slowdowns that might otherwise uh, come up? I, I think that's one of the reasons why over the last, you know, sort of few months, we've seen a lot of nervousness in the work in the market just sort of expressed through, well, I'm uncertain I'm going to go to high quality. I'm not going to go to defensives. I think that that, you know, has helped bolster that case for moving to the secular growers. But we do know that we're starting to wind down some of these programs where we can sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I think the power of that to sort of bolster markets going forward at least has a diminished impact, even if you're not pulling the rug out from the market all at once. But we have seen also underperformance of small caps. We have seen a yes. rotation out of cyclicals. Can we glean any confidence in equity valuations based on this discretion that we're seeing on the part of fund managers? Look, I think that, you know, there are a couple different questions, I think, baked in there. I think it's a great question. But I think in terms of small cap, you know, I think that we've seen so many worries manifest in the dramatic underperformance of small caps since March. I think at first it was the impact of inflation on profit margins, which really didn't end up coming through. Um, but I think worries were expressed there. Investors have fretted about the negative feedback that you'll get on demand from inflation. That's also been expressed in small cap. And now I think sort of you mentioned the softening in the high frequency indicators. I think some of the short term, you know, sort of economic damage from the Delta variant, I think that's manifest in small cap. Um, but small caps have, you know, at the end of the day, not completely collapsed. We haven't seen them go into bear market territory. So there's, you know, a little bit of that resilience that we will be able to turn the corner still showing up in that data set. Is it time to get more defensive within your equity allocation, though, Lori? You know, we essentially did that, Kaylee. We actually have been dialing down the cyclicality. I don't make sector recommendation changes all that often, but a few weeks ago, we actually did pull down materials, which was our least favorite of the cyclicals. We're sticking with financials and energy, um, but we did actually boost the tech sector, the proper tech sector. It doesn't include the internet stuff, um, but we did pull that up to an overweight from a market weight. And we basically said going forward, if we're thinking about the next 12 months or so, we want to be very balanced between sort of the defensiveness of secular growth and the cyclical oriented sectors. So we did actually make that that sort of shift on the dial. So you're looking out 12 months. I'm looking out the next, you know, three months and change and wondering if in 2021 we will see a 5% drawdown at any point in this equity market. What would be the catalyst for that? So I think we got a little bit of a hint of it last week with concerns on the growth outlook. And, and look, I'm not saying that anybody's anticipating we're going to have a recession or anything like that. But I do think there had been some complacency on the economic data that investors had you know, or some deterioration on the economic data. And there have been, frankly, some complacency about the impact of this Delta variant from market participants. So I think that was a little bit of a wake up call, a little bit of period of digestion we had to have. And but let's just zoom out a little bit. What was that you know, sort of reaction to the Delta variant all about? out. It was an unanticipated bit of bad news that hit the market and really challenged investors' assumptions of what they thought going forward. So I think the answer in there, Kaylee, it's probably something that the market is not able to anticipate. With valuations where they are, with sentiment as stretched as it is, this is not a market that has a lot of room to absorb bad news when we do get it. Lori Calvacina, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. This is a joy. Let's get right to it with Michael Darda.
with MKM uh, Partners, our chief economist and market strategy. Mark, uh, Michael, you go right at the media gloom crew. You just tear them to shreds in your note, and you say, look, there's a lot of labor data which shows a more employed America. There is high-frequency data that shows a pretty good, maybe not mint set of data as well. What's the gloom crew get wrong? Well, Tom, I, I think the, the gloom crew is focused on the variant, and, and that news has been bad, and there are risks. All of that said, if we do look at the highest frequency economic data that should tell us if the economy is rolling over, that still looks good for the most part. So this past week, we saw jobless claims hit a new post-pandemic low. So at least so far, you know, the labor market looks fairly undisturbed and unperturbed um, by this Delta shock. Uh, that could change in the future, but so far, you know, high-frequency labor market data looking good. Also, uh, your weekly confidence numbers that come out on, on Thursday have actually held up pretty well, and that's a critical point because the University of Michigan data that totally fell out of bed in August, I think, really <clears throat> scared a lot of people. Mm -hmm. and, and the risk with the, the variant is really twofold. One would be if there are actually explicit directed shutdowns, which doesn't seem to be happening on a large scale. The other risk would be that households, consumers just simply get scared and pull back. And so that's why there was a lot of concern with that number. Yet the weekly confidence data uh, over the last four weeks has increased each week and is almost back at a, you know, essentially is matching a post-pandemic high. So yeah. if, if that continues, I think we're in <clears throat> in pretty good shape. If not, then we'll have to worry more. So that's my, right, that's my, right. right. Michael Darda, SPX level 4452, Dow 35,219. The markets share the streets gloom, don't they? Why is there a bid to stocks? Three reasons, Tom. Uh, we have high equity prices. Earnings are very high and have been doing very well. Record S&P 500 earnings and expectations are high. Still low discount rates, so the 10-year yield is moving up a little bit, but very low, lower than most people thought at the beginning of the year, and high liquidity. So you have to disturb one of those three supports for equity prices, high liquidity, high earnings, low discount rates. Our view with the strong recovery is that discount rates should be moving up over time, and, and that will be a headwind to PE ratios. If it plays out, it's not really playing out. You know, we've had a little bit of a movement northward. Real rates do seem like they're starting to move up now, so they're up about 20 basis points since early August. That will be something to keep an eye on, you know, as we move into Jackson Hole this week and potentially hear more plans about uh, potential yeah. tapering from the Fed. Mike, we talk about Jackson Hole, but we really ought to call it a Zoom event. I don't know, a Zoom fab. It's just really kind of an interesting uh, shift to all remote for a second year. What is a bigger risk to markets coming out of the Jackson Hole remote confab? Is it the potential for a more hawkish Fed Chair Powell, someone who actually makes news, or perhaps somebody who holds the stance and raises the uh, specter of higher than expected inflation down the line should the Delta variant prove to be a passive a viral strain. Yeah, I think, you know, Powell is going to try not to make big waves uh, on Friday. All of that said, it's pretty clear now, based on recent speeches and the recent Fed minutes, that the center of intellectual
actual gravity on the Fed is definitely moving towards announcing a taper uh, this year and, and probably commencing the taper before year end, provided the labor market holds up. So this is all going to be data dependent. The, the Fed's operating assumption at this point is that the Delta variant is not going to dramatically throw the recovery off course. If that proves to be false, then they're going to end up waiting longer. Um, but as I mentioned before, with those high frequency indicators um, suggesting that we're still in pretty good shape, I think the Fed, I think what Powell, Powell will uh, hint at is what we already know that you know that a taper will be announced likely this fall, and by the winter the Fed will be pulling the trigger on it. What high frequency data points are you paying the most attention to, Mike? Well, aside from claims and confidence that come out weekly, I'm really you know, watching the anatomy of this bond market. So as, as yields move up and down, you know, we're watching what is driving that. Is it real rates or inflation expectations? You also have the estimated term premium in there. And against that foliage, what's happening in metals market and in markets and in risky credit, right? So what we need to be on the lookout for is if real rates start to spike and you have inflation expectations crashing, credit spreads blowing out, you know, that would not be what we want to see. Uh, so far, that's, you know, that's not really playing out. We've got a modest correction in commodities taking shape. Credit spreads have widened some, um, but, you know, but so far, there really doesn't look like there's anything malignant taking place in, in credit markets. Mike, is this a market that is already positioned for the taper and therefore we will get no tantrum? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, what's happening in the bond market doesn't look anything like 2013 so far. So in that episode, we had a really big surge in real rates. Inflation expectations fell pretty considerably. And at least temporarily, we, you know, we had some serious upward pressure on credit risk spreads, a big commodity uh, fall off as, as well. Um, and then, you know, in the run-up to the 2015 rate hike, even even more severe on the, much more severe on the commodity side. Uh, so this is not playing out in the same way, at least so far. And it's been very, very well telegraphed. And so maybe the focus on a potential taper tantrum means that it, it just simply doesn't play out uh, in, in the 2013 fashion this time. So if it's well telegraphed, it maybe doesn't present that large of a downside risk. So what could be the potential biggest downside catalyst for this market? I, I do think that the downside catalyst for the market would probably be on the valuation side. I don't think we're going to see a big liquidity shock, and I think earnings are going to be okay as long as the economy stays relatively strong. But in a strong economy scenario where the Fed tightens, you still could have you know, upward pressure on, on rates. It might not come as a sudden shock, but you know, over time, I think you know, the 10-year yield is likely going to be gravitating northward. And, you know, and that should put downward pressure on uh, stock market multiples. Earnings could make up for some of that, but, you know, we're, we're sort of overdue here uh, with the broad indices for, you know, some kind yeah. of hold or at least yeah. consolidation period. Michael, let's go back to University of Wisconsin Microeconomics 101. Let's look at the supply curve dynamics. We have a supply shock folded into a labor market right now, all sorts of theories here, shifts, this, that, the other thing. Do you believe that there's a suppleness to the American economy where we will adapt and adjust and get back to normal supply dynamics? 
I think we are adjusting, uh, Tom. It, it doesn't happen overnight, um, yeah. but the labor market is on the rebound now. Obviously, we still do have these supply-side dislocations that are a headwind. You know, we can certainly see that anyone that's been out there and dealing with the services industries knows that the labor shortage problems are still there. Service is slow and, you know, it's difficult to hold on to employees, help wanted signs all over the place. Um, and the Delta variant certainly does not help that, but, you know, we're going to get through the Delta variant and the economy is going to stay relatively open. Uh, as school starts up, that should ease some of these concerns about uh, child care, the extended jobless benefits. I know there's a debate about the impact, but those are, you know, going to wrap up this fall. Um, and, you know, uh, that means the labor market is going to continue to be on the upswing here, both in terms of job gains and labor force increases. What's your 12-month GDP call? I mean, we've got people coming down 6.5%, maybe even some gloomier. The Fed obviously much more cautious. What is your call on GDP 12 months forward? Yeah, our, our call is, is solidly above trend for next year. So keep in mind that you know, trend growth that the U.S. is fully employed is only going to be about two percent real, four percent nominal. Yeah. So we're going to be we're going to be at least a few hundred basis points above that straight through next year, and maybe even beyond, depending on you know the timing, the magnitude of Fed tightening. So above trend growth means the labor market continues to tighten, and it likely means some upward pressure on on long-term interest rates, at least from from where we are now. So that's. That's the call without giving you a specific right. point forecast. Solidly above trend. Michael Darda, stay dry. Michael Darda caught in the rain this weekend, really right in the heart. Of, is, is it Henry or Henri, Lisa? It's Henri. Henri. <laughs> it's, that's, you, you, and how Michel do you say Michel Darda. Yeah, bon. Henri. You can't Henri. read it without, yeah. Okay. Henri. Henri. Right now, she's not a vice admiral, but we'll talk with Sabra Klein, microbiologist at Johns Hopkins and, of course, with the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Sabra, just we're thrilled to have you on today, and I need to go to your wheelhouse, which is the differences in all these things, these bacteria and these viruses between male and female. You are world-acclaimed world on that. Does COVID treat women different than men? It does. So women tend to be less likely to be hospitalized and to die from COVID-19, um, at least among unvaccinated individuals. We also have growing um, bodies of literature showing us that women are mounting greater immune responses and may have more durable immunity to the COVID-19 vaccines than men. How has Delta variant changed things? I mean, for everything we do in economics, finance, and investment, it's this huge overlay. But over the weekend, how did you settle out where the Delta variant is right now? I think where the Delta variant right now, it is spreading. And I am probably most concerned um, about pregnant women and children. So if we start with pregnant women, there is definitely some vaccine hesitancy being reported around the country. Um, among women who are either trying to get pregnant or who are pregnant. And I think the CDC has come out quite clearly that all available data suggests that pregnant women are at increased risk of miscarriage and preterm birth if they become infected with COVID-19. There is absolutely no indication 
that the COVID-19 vaccines, any of the platforms that are um, being approved or already are approved by the FDA in the United States, that these vaccines pose any safety risk for a pregnant woman or her developing fetus. In the meantime, of course, we do have questions around the efficacy of the vaccines, not preventing hospitalizations, but preventing infection from the Delta variant and transmission. Everything I read is so confusing. What's the latest on the likelihood of contracting the variant if you've been fully vaccinated? So we, we, it, the likelihood is still low, but there is an increased likelihood that we could become infected, meaning people who are fully vaccinated can become infected with this Delta variant. It is more infectious. It's more readily transmissible. But the evidence so far suggests that we are still significantly less likely to be hospitalized or to die. And that includes people who are immunocompromised or uh, immunosenesced based on age. But, but, but Dr. Klein, and, and, and forgive me for, for interrupting, there is a question, though, from a public, public health standpoint, that even if you are not going to the hospital, you are a node of transmission, even as a vaccinated individual, if you contract the virus. And so there is a question about booster shots. How much, from a public health perspective, do they lower uh, the curve? Do they basically bring down the circulating viral load in the community and get us out of this pandemic faster? I think it's going to be a combination. I think it's going to be a combination of the booster, but also interventions like mask wearing, like social distancing. So we really can bring that number down to zero, as you suggest. I think we are asking vaccines to do something that we have never asked them to do before. You know, there is a distinction between vaccines preventing disease and and protecting us from being hospitalized and dying versus protecting us from becoming infected. And this this new level of scrutiny and and need for reducing infection is is really, I think, what's driving a lot of the discussion uh, around boosters, which in the United States will begin more broadly in September. Of course, the conversation around boosters really started because it seems at least there are in suggestions that you have waning immunity eight months out after you get your shot. But we but we have to consider the people who got their shots first, people who already were immunocompromised, the older population. Could that be a factor in why the effect seems to be waning? Such a fantastic observation. Yes, that really could be. Um, Our data thus far suggests that among younger, healthy adults, while there is some waning, it's not to the degree that we see in um, either older adults or immunocompromised individuals. So, you know, I just want to, you know, I just want to say, Kaylee, that the reason that was a fantastic question is she's playing a Southern card. She's out of the Georgia schools. <laughs> you're out of the Virginia schools, and she's treating me and Lisa like garbage. Continue. <laughs> That was not my intention, Tom. Wow. But you had a fantastic question. Lisa and I didn't have a fantastic question. Speak to the doctor from Georgia right now, please. All right, to the doctor from Georgia, Dr. Sabra Klein. My other question is, if you have already had COVID-19, if you tested positive, does it matter or do the variants mean that you can continue to get it again and again and again? So it does appear that that this Delta variant, we can get this Delta variant even if we had been infected um, with that initial 
um, SARS-CoV-2 that, that started this pandemic. So again, I think even if you've been infected, there is some evidence that that immunity does wane. Um, and, and much of that will depend on when you became infected. But I do think boosters are, are going to be recommended regardless of whether you had been infected previously. Dr. Klein, don't be a stranger. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sober Klein, who got an A-plus on the Krebs cycle, unlike <laughs> some of us with Johns Hopkins <laughs> really, this morning. You have to reveal that about me? Really, no, I, went, I, I took the exam for the Krebs cycle, and Lisa, I went down in flames. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.